BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We made it through the storm. We are live. Last night when I went to bed, I thought it wasn't going to happen. In fact, I tweeted out, uh, Louise and I are now joining the uh, literally millions of Americans who are going to sleep with five blankets, three cats, and two dogs. It was cold. (laughs) We We had no electricity yesterday, which meant we had no heat all day. Sometime in the evening, the power came back on throughout the neighborhood. Our studio is, is just down the road from where we live. So, you know, the studio was working and Sean was able to make it into work today, which she couldn't do on Friday because of the, you know, I mean, Portland just got whomped. We had eight inches of snow here at our house, which is just unprecedented for Portland. I mean, there was a big snowstorm back in 1960, but basically everybody's saying, This is the worst it's ever been. And just to make clear what happened, and I I wrote about this today over at medium.com, as a result of global warming, that jet stream, which keeps the polar air in the polar region, it acts like kind of a wall around a fortress, right? It keeps the cold air on top of the world where it's supposed to be rather than letting it slide down onto the rest of the world. That has been breaking down. And it's been breaking down because what creates it is the temperature differential, the difference in temperature between the polar region and us, the rest of the northern hemisphere. And when that difference is really big, when it's really cold there and it's not so cold here, that difference creates what could be called a front. If you've ever seen a thunderstorm coming, you know, that's typically cold air behind the thunderstorm warm air where you are, and as the two collide, boom, you've got this front, and that's your line of thunderstorms, right? Well, the jet stream could be thought of as a, as a massive front. So as the ice in the Arctic has been melting steadily, as it's been melting, it has been replaced sunlight and heat-reflecting white ice by sunlight and heat-absorbing blue and black water. It's been heating up two to six times faster than the rest of the globe. And as it heats up, that difference in temperature between the Arctic region and us diminishes to the point where the jet stream loses its potency. It loses its strength. And it can't hold that cold air back. And that's what happened this week, or last week, is it just couldn't hold that cold air back on the Arctic any longer, and it kind of broke open and drooled down all the way down to Mexico and brought a huge mass of cold Arctic air with it. Get ready for more of this. I mean, this is a serious problem. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a serious problem. It gets worse and worse as time goes on unless we stop burning fossil fuels. So huge flag that we need to be paying attention to global warming. We need a new Green New Deal, frankly. We need to decarbonize our transportation and other systems and, and, and housing systems in this country. And we need to do it as quickly as we can. I really want to talk about how the collapse of the energy system in Texas the collapse of the social safety net all across the United States, 40 years of paralysis in terms of rebuilding and maintaining this nation's infrastructure, 
the perpetual lies being told by the Republican Party uh, across a whole spectrum of issues from coronavirus lies to global warming lies to Trump lost the election, won the election, whatever lies are all the same thing. And they're all coming out of this one same place, which is this idea that was popularized back in the 1950s by Milton Friedman out of the University of Chicago and Ayn Rand and, and uh, Hayek and others, von Mises, that markets are the solution to everything. Government is always going to screw things up. If you want things to work, you have to always rely on markets, which is a fancy way, a, a very elegant kind of dressing for the argument that we should not be governing ourselves, which is democracy. Instead, we should be governed by those who have the most economic control in the marketplace, the oligarchs. It's an argument for oligarchy, essentially. What that does is it leads to an absolute disintegration of anything that doesn't make a profit. If, the entire, if your entire focus, if the one thing that you're always looking at is how do we maximize short-term profits, all the long-term goals that you would otherwise have, like making sure, for example, that your electric generation system down in Texas is capable of dealing with cold weather. And this is not, I mean, yes, it's a historic cold, but this is not the first time the system in Texas has collapsed like this. Back in 2011, this happened. It got really cold in Texas. And as a consequence, again, the, the moisture in the natural gas lines froze up and the flow of natural gas radically dropped. And as a result of that, the power plants that were running on natural gas, and people's homes for that matter, couldn't get enough gas. And, you know, it was a crisis. In fact, it happened several times. It happened in 1989 as well. And in both cases, the federal government came in and uh, looked at the situation, federal energy officials. This is the... the, the uh, and, and, and what they found was that there was a complete failure here to winterize these systems, to, to be capable of dealing with these kinds of problems. And what did the, what did the Texas utilities do? These for-profit utilities that are, that are looking at you know, short-term profits rather than long-term concerns, they just shrugged. They said, man, not our problem. You know, doing that. The, the same thing, by the way, happened in California. California, you've got PG&E, which is a for-profit corporation that, that got spun out of Enron, as you'll recall. And, you know, while they were paying literally multi-million dollar bonuses and salaries to senior executives and billions in dividends to their stockholders, which is what for-profit companies do, they were not maintaining their power lines. They were not putting power lines underground where they might not be subject to high winds or to, to wildfires. They were not doing just basic maintenance. The same thing has been happening in Texas. And now, of course, we've got Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, just you know, lying through his teeth. You know, This shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America, Greg Abbott said. Our wind and our solar got shut down, and they were collectively more than 10% of our power grid, and that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power on a statewide basis. It shows fossil fuel is necessary. Well, that's like, there's a whole bunch of lies in there. Out of the 10,000 windmills in Texas, about 300 of them shut down, as far as I can find from public reporting, first of all. Secondly, wind turbines like that, like the ones that shut down in Texas, being run by private for-profit utilities, those same kinds of wind turbines are running right now in Greenland and Sweden and Norway and northern Germany, where it's a hell of a lot colder than it is in Texas, and they're not freezing up. Why? Because they're being properly maintained because they were anticipating the possibility of this kind of thing happening. Because it routinely happens, you know, up in the Arctic Circle in Norway. But, you know, hey, it would have cost a little bit more money. It would have meant that they couldn't give their executives big, big bonuses. It would have meant that the various power companies in Texas that were deregulated back in the 1980s, I believe it was, Texas said, that's it. We're going to disconnect our grid from all these states around us, and we're going to go our own way because the federal government wants to regulate our electricity. The federal government wants to have a say in how reliable our electricity is. And we're going to have nothing to do with that. 
And the consequence of that is what we're seeing right now. The Washington Post is just remarkable. It's the financial structure for power generation that offers no incentives to power plant operators to prepare for winter in the name of deregulation and free markets. And this, by the way, is also happening in Oklahoma and Louisiana, where they've got somewhat similar situations. They haven't completely blocked themselves off from other states. There has been no shortage of studies over the years. We've had a number of people on talking about this over the years. In fact, it was a, a topic, a, a major topic of conversation on this program back during the California wildfires, that when utilities are run by the people, when utilities are owned and run by government, by the state government, by county governments, by city governments, when they are utilities, actual utilities, when they have surplus money, they use that money to upgrade their systems. I mean, what else are you going to do with it? You can't just shovel it out the door to your stockholders because you don't have any stockholders. And so publicly owned utilities, and you can, you can Google this, publicly owned utilities are much more reliable, much less likely to suffer shutdowns and meltdowns like this. At uh, 7 o'clock Pacific time this morning, I flipped on Fox News just to see what they were, and they're literally their, open, their lead story, the opening sentences, windmills shut down in Texas causing crisis, or words to that effect. Natural gas is going to back us all up. Well, not so much when the natural gas freezes because natural gas has moisture in it. And so you, you know, if you don't insulate your pipelines, which Texas didn't bother to do, because they're like, well, you know, this only happens once in a while. It happened in 2011, it happened in 1989. I mean, that's what, twice in the last 40 years, 50 years, it's not a big deal. Apparently nobody told Texas that there is this thing called global warming and that it is getting worse. And the global warming does cause things like this massive cold wave. I realize it seems contradictory, but it's true. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. On the line with us is uh, Adrian Shelley, the executive director of Public Citizen Texas. Citizen.org is the website. I was ranting about deregulation and this whole, you know, Republican, weird Republican ideology. But what exactly is going on in Texas from everything you can tell? And what's the history of this? Texas has experienced a record-setting freeze that began just at the beginning of this week on Sunday night, Monday morning. And the Texas electricity infrastructure, like much of our infrastructure, just isn't prepared for winter weather. Some of your listeners around the country, especially up north, may be thinking, uh, you know, it's only a couple of inches of snow. Why can't they just deal? And the reality is we just don't have the infrastructure from the, uh, you know, salt for our roads to the insulation uh, for our pipes and electricity transmission lines. So on Monday, as uh, demand for energy is absolutely skyrocketing with everyone hunkered down in their homes, sources of electricity generation began to go down. And this really applied across the types of energy in Texas. There were wind turbines that went down. There was a nuclear power plant. There was coal. 
the largest culprit was natural gas generation. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, this is a, a problem that we've known about for some time in Texas. Deep freezing storms are rare, but they happen. Probably the last most significant one was in February of 2011, 10 years ago. And at that time, the Texas Senate held uh, joint hearings. The Public Utility Commission of Texas pledged to look into uh, winter weatherization of our electricity infrastructure. It was a federal report that was produced about the need to winterize. But unfortunately, the way that the energy market works in Texas, there's just no incentive for electricity generators to make those investments. We run a market that only rewards generators when they sell energy, and their only incentive is to produce energy cheaply and sell it into the market. We do not provide payments to harden your generation or to ensure that there is additional capacity available should it be needed. Um, our market is completely deregulated and market-based. So unfortunately, despite the fact that we have known for at least a decade about these problems, uh, the companies that are generating and selling energy in a free market here in Texas just don't have the incentive to do that weatherization that's required to prevent these, uh, these accidents from happening. What percentage of the electricity generating and transmitting, I guess, the, you know, the, 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 the lines as well that, that get it from the plant to, to, the, to the local region and from the local region into people's homes, what percentage of that is owned by for-profit uh, corporations as opposed to municipal utility kind of things? I can't speak to an exact percentage, but uh, let's start with the, the, the universe of, of electricity that we're, we're dealing with here. We're talking about the Texas grid, right? People may know by now that there are three grids in America. It's essentially the western states, the eastern states, and Texas. And the Texas grid serves about 90% of the state. It doesn't serve El Paso. It doesn't serve Panhandle, a few places in east Texas. Um, within the Texas grid, there are a couple of municipally owned utilities. There's Austin Energy, which serves the people of Austin, and there's CPS Energy, which serves the people of San Antonio. People in those places don't have choice, right? They have to purchase energy from that municipally owned utility. And then there are another, oh, I think two dozen or so electric co-ops around the state. And these are a little bit smaller generally. But again, the participants in the co-op, while they do have some control over where they get their energy as a co-op, they don't have the option to purchase from elsewhere. So a couple of limited pockets of municipal ownership. The vast majority of Texans that are on the Texas grid uh, have the option to buy energy from any seller that they want. But again, they are entirely dependent on the free markets to provide them with the electricity that they need. I've researched this in the past, and what it seems that I keep finding is that municipal-owned utilities, because they their job is to serve the people rather than make extra profits for their shareholders that they can pay out in dividends, because of that, they tend to be more reliable, they go down less frequently, they're, you know, all those kinds of things. Because if they have a little extra money left over, they'll they'll either reduce rates, and I would guess with a co-op, there's a lot of pressure to do that, or they'll improve their operations. Whereas the for-profit outfits, what happens is when they have a little extra money, they just distribute it to their shareholders as dividends. Have we seen that dynamic in Texas, or is that not something that's been measured? Yeah, it's a little too soon to say whether you know, the municipal generation was more vulnerable than the open market generation. I will say that some of our municipal utilities really do operate as if they are profit-driven entities generating revenue for shareholders. Most notably there is going to be CPS Energy in San Antonio, which generates something on the order of $300 million a year in revenue for the city. And interestingly enough, hmm. CPS Energy, they built the last coal plant to open uh, in the United States. The 
Spruce Power Plant, which was built, I believe, in 2010, 2011. <laughs> so not a very forward-thinking decision there. And now many clean energy public health advocates in San Antonio are, are battling with CPS Energy over when and how they will close that coal plant. Certainly the incentive for the for-profit actors is, is away from additional investment to the point about whether that's going to be reflected in, you know, who is impacted by blackouts. I don't think there's going to be a correlation there because ERCOT, the market and the grid operator, directed blackouts to occur, uh, you know, throughout ERCOT's service area. Uh, so so um, regional places Which is most of the state of Texas. Required. Right, right, exactly. So even places like, uh, you know, Austin Energy, for example, had to administer rolling blackouts. I don't know how much of Austin Energy's generation went down. They have a coal plant as well, Fayette Power Project. Those numbers will come out. But the reductions in power that were demanded by ERCOT were, were spread out across the state. They were trying to do that as rolling blackouts, weren't they, so that they could uh, redistribute load? Well, you know, we heard that. Um, I think people's experience has been very different. And again, this is something the, the real details and numbers uh, behind which will need to come out. Anecdotally, I would say uh, there are you know people like myself uh, up here in North Austin who have not experienced any power outages whatsoever. There are people like my sister in downtown Houston who has had no power for two and a half days now. You know, the average Texan's experience here has been widely varied. When we think of rolling blackout, you know, we're probably thinking, well, you know, you lose uh, power for an hour here, you lose it for an hour here. The reality has been that the blackouts seem to be distributed almost at random and, and inequitably across the state. Um, there's been a, a really interesting series of images that came out on social media on Monday night from all of our major cities, there were photos that were taken of, of downtown city skylines. And we all know that all of those office buildings and, and hotels were probably largely empty even before this recent freezing disaster. Um, but in every major city, you could see lit up uh, buildings, city skylines that were uh, very much aglow. And uh, people around the state pointed to that as uh, apparent evidence of, of ERCOT's inability uh, to, to cut load, to administer blackouts uh, where it would seem to make sense. Hmm. Could it have been that those regions where you've got high-density buildings are also regions where you've got lots of hospitals or you know, uh, other critical infrastructure, police and things like that, fire? Or, or was it just, just general incompetence and bumbling? You know, those are good questions, and those are questions that are going to need to be answered in the days and weeks to come. Um, our uh, Governor Greg Abbott has called for an investigation into ERCOT, even as he was going on to Hannity and uh, concluding that wind and the Green New Deal were somehow to blame. In our uh, state legislature, we have hearings coming up in the, in the coming days. You know, we're not really sure right now. Certainly, I've heard a lot of talk. Again, this is just anecdotally, but, you know, people who assert that because they are close to the hospital or the water treatment plant or, or some other critical infrastructure that, you know, they were spared outages. The reality is we just don't have that detail at this point. Is there a consensus to look into this? or are, What I'm hearing from the Republican power structure of Texas is uh, it's the damn windmills. Right. And that is a message that began spreading early on Monday and that has spread like wildfire for political reasons. Unfortunately, the facts just don't bear that out. I mentioned earlier that all sources of energy were having trouble. Um, wind did have trouble. It lost about four gigawatts of uh, energy that it was expected to produce on Monday. Compare that to the thermal sources, coal, natural gas, nuclear, they lost about 26 gigawatts, so more than a four and a half times as great a loss as the wind industry. There's not one source that's responsible for what happened here. It was a failure across the board. I was reading in the Washington Post this morning that there are, that some customers, some, some people who are electricity users in Texas 
we're getting a, uh, a notification that their electric bills were going up to like eight thousand dollars kilowatt hour or something like I, I you know I don't I don't remember the measurement the the piece but you know the prices were just spiking how does that work something like that right so there is a cap um, for wholesale pricing and that cap is nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour, uh, which would translate to about nine bucks per kilowatt hour on a bill, right? And it is true that on Monday, uh, prices reached that cap. In fact, the uh, state regulator, the Public Utility Commission of Texas, actually stepped in and raised the price to meet that market cap of 9000 And that makes sense at a time when uh, demand is exceeding supply by, by a factor of two, right? If there's not even enough energy uh, to supply all the needs in Texas, it would make sense that energy would be selling for the maximum price. Um, now, that uh, does mean that purchasers of energy are going to have to pay more, and it does mean that some of that price is going to trickle down into people's bills. Um, how that actually works is highly specific to you and your contract with your power provider. There are some people who have contracts that are directly linked to that wholesale price. So if the wholesale price goes up to 9000 then your bill is going to show uh, a, a similar proportional increase. And you may end up with a very large bill uh, for the couple of minutes or hours that that happens. Uh, just like power producers make a, a whole lot, and in some cases a significant percentage of their money during those times of incredible price spikes, there are some pricing models for consumers that are going to have them paying most of their price when these very large spikes happen. Other people have contracts that smooth out the energy price a little bit more uh, over the weeks and months of the year. Yeah. Now, nine dollars a kilowatt hour. I, I, my recollection is that I'm paying here in Oregon around six or seven cents a kilowatt hour. Is that is that am I am I remembering that right? Does that sound right to you? That's correct. Yeah, you're looking at orders of magnitude greater. Um, but keep in mind, this is only going to be for a few minutes or hours uh, of your entire bill. Right? You're essentially purchasing power 24 hours a day. Uh, and maybe a few of those hours you're going to be purchasing at that maximum price. Now, we all remember uh, back during the uh, Enron scandals where you had these, uh, these kids who were uh, traders, I guess, uh, you know, electricity traders at Enron headquarters who were talking about, you know, shut down that power plant over there, you know, hey, to hell with grandma, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that it turned out that the reason they were doing this is as they reduced the amount of electricity that was available in the California market, it drove up the price, which increased Enron's profitability. Is that what's happening in Texas? I mean, are these these power plants at, at you know as electricity goes from from six or seven cents a kilowatt hour up to nine dollars a kilowatt hour? Um, that's just going right to their bottom line, or is that? I mean, is there some kind of logic beyond just the marketplace here? Is that is that additional money supposed to be used to like build out infrastructure or protect it for the future or something? I mean, or is it just purely supply and demand? Yeah, so there has been a lot of speculation about that kind of market manipulation. Um, another uh, rumor that I've seen out there in the last few days is that natural gas generators actually shut down when the spot price of their natural gas fuel uh, increased dramatically. Um, the, the reality is I don't think any sort of coordinated uh, effort or manipulative effort like that uh, was possible this week. There has been uh, so much chaos in the market and in the grid, uh, sources going down, rolling blackouts. Uh, it just doesn't seem likely or feasible that that kind of manipulation would be going on at the same time. Um, now, it is true that the way prices ebb and flow here in Texas uh, are, are, are a little unusual and a little difficult to interpret at times. Um, the fact that we have these uh, price spikes where energy becomes, you know, a hundred times more expensive, uh, it's an unusual pricing model. And there are some sources that have to sell at those high prices to make any money at all. 
Uh, so it's it's, it's it's a confusing Amazing. picture, difficult for retailers or consumers to understand. Right. Adrian Shelley, the executive director of Public Citizen Texas. Adrian, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking with you. Very informative. Thank you. Thank you, and keep us in your thoughts here in Texas. You're listening Will to do. the Tom Hartman Program. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On the line with us is the uh, one of the world's leading climate scientists, Dr. Michael Mann, distinguished professor of meteorology, the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, member of the National Academy of Sciences, representative uh, recipient, excuse me, of the Tyler Prize, the author of several books. His latest, The New Climate War, his previous, The Madhouse Effect. Michael Mann with two N's. Dot net is his website uh, Twitter handle Michael E Mann with two N's. And, uh, and Michael and I have uh, appeared in several documentaries together, and uh, he's just a, an extraordinary man. Uh, Dr. Mann, uh, no, no pun intended. Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Um, please describe for us why Texas is so cold right now. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure uh, to be on the show with you, my friend. Um, so, you know, one of the things that you hear from climate change deniers is, this idea that a cold winter outbreak like the one we're seeing in Texas is somehow a disproof of human-caused climate change. And the reality is that it's nothing of the sort. If you look at all of the records, cold and warm over time, we're seeing all-time records for warmth around the world. If you count up every day of the year um, and every location on the Earth, and you can tally how often in any one location you break uh, the record uh, for that day, either the warm record or the cold record. And the warm records are outpacing the cold records two to one, which is exactly what we expect in a cooling, in, in a warming world. Um, but here's the thing. There may be some evidence that the cold extremes aren't going away as quickly as the hot extremes are increasing. And that may be because climate change not only is warming up the planet, but it's changing the behavior of the jet stream, of our atmosphere. And we do seem to be getting uh, an unusually large number of these bitter Arctic uh, cold air outbreaks in recent years, in, in midwinter in the United States, um, like we're seeing right now. And it's associated with the so-called polar vortex that we hear so much about. If the polar vortex weakens, um, it, it's what bottles up the cold air in the Arctic. And if that tight band of winds that's associated with the jet stream and what we call the, the polar vortex, if that weakens, then you can sort of get these cold blobs that sort of break off and drift down into lower latitudes. And that's what's happening right now. Now, there's some reason to believe that human-caused warming may actually weaken the polar vortex and weaken the jet stream. And that's because the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the planet because of the melting of ice. Um, that leads to an amplifying effect. Uh, there's more warming in the Arctic than there is at lower latitudes. And that reduces the temperature contrast between the Arctic, which is warming up faster, and the subtropics, 
if you reduce that temperature contrast, then we understand the physics of that. Uh, you decrease the strength of the jet stream and the strength of the polar vortex. So it's at least plausible that the increase in these uh, cold air outbreaks may be related to how climate change is impacting our atmospheric circulation. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're seeing record cold. Uh, what everybody is getting so excited about here is something that would have been typical in the 1960s and the 1970s. It's just a bout. It's just a, um, a temporary episode of what we might call old-fashioned cold. So we're not seeing record, all-time records for cold set here. We're just seeing sort of a cold that we haven't seen in, in some decades. And meanwhile, this year, this last summer, we set the record for the hottest temperature ever reliably recorded on the planet in Death Valley, California. So we need some perspective here. Mm -hmm. So if I could turn this into a metaphor for, for people who may not get the physics of it, um, if we were to think of, and, and, and please, uh, you know, uh, feel free to interrupt me if I get any of this wrong or you know, when, I'm, when I'm done with this, uh, you know, comment on it, please. Um, if, if we were to imagine that the Arctic is like an old medieval castle, um, you know, uh, uh, built in, in someplace in Europe, and around that castle is a giant wall, you know, like the, like the wall around the old city of Jerusalem, for example, or the, you know, the wall around a lot of castles. And the and that wall is the jet stream, and it is keeping. And the castle is the Arctic region with filled with very very cold air, and so that jet stream wall, that that's that band of high speed wind that that runs like a like a giant river around the around the northern uh, uh, polar region, uh, circular all around the planet continuously. That if if that wall weakens then the cold that is the castle inside the wall starts spilling out as the the wall actually deforms the wall itself will just like move you know a half a mile or or something in, in and I'm, I'm mangling this metaphor now but um and that and that castle cold comes with that moving wall and that's what that's what's happened the jet stream has bent or dipped all the way down to to mexico when normally it stops somewhere in central canada is that is that do i have that right yeah and if i can extend the metaphor and in fact bring in a princess bride reference because i never resist the opportunity to do that um, okay. it's sort of like we've opened up <laughs> we've opened up the portcullis um, the, the, the gate to uh, that uh, fortress and allowed the cold air out. Um, and that's, you know, one way of thinking of this. Um, it, it's not a bad analogy at all. In fact, it's an analogy that's pretty faithful to the underlying mathematics and physics. The idea that the, this tight band of winds is like a wall that keeps the cold walled in to the old city, the Arctic, um, and we've opened the door now. We've opened the portcullis and, and allowed the, uh, the cold air to escape uh, out into lower latitudes. Uh, the United States, Europe, which is seeing similar cold. Of course, uh, many of your listeners may have seen the snowfall in Athens. I mean, we haven't seen that in a long time, but it's not unprecedented. What we're getting now mm -hmm. is, a, is, you know, an episode of old-fashioned cold, not record-breaking cold. But record-breaking heat, we are seeing that every summer. And that's all consistent with a warming planet, with what we expect on a warming planet. Right. So are we seeing these? I mean, I, you and I had this conversation, it must have been five years ago, when I was living on a boat in, the, in, the, in, the, in Washington, D.C., you know, in the, in the harbor there. And uh, we had this, they called it a bomb cyclone, and it, it, it froze the, the Potomac River, you know, where we were. We had these ice eaters uh, around the boat that were circulating the water to keep it from freezing and damaging the hull of the boat. It was uh, quite the emergency. And my recollection is that at the time you were saying, you know, expect this to happen more frequently. Am I remembering that correctly? And is that what's going on? Yeah, so, you know, we, it's, it, it's possible that we're going to see more uh, frequent, uh, you know, Arctic blasts, cold air outbreaks. Now, they won't be breaking all-time records for cold because the planet's warmed up so much. And so mm -hmm. what that really means is we're, 
we may not see the disappearance of extreme cold as quickly as we might expect on a warmer uh, on a warming planet. We might expect to continue to see these cold air outbreaks um, even as the planet warms up because it's possible that climate change is creating a more favorable atmospheric environment for these cold air you know masses to break off of the uh, polar vortex and drift down into lower latitudes. Uh, but it won't be record-breaking cold. It'll just be sort of that old-fashioned cold uh, that we grew up with in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, you know, at the same time, of course, we're seeing new records for heat, and, and that's truly dangerous, right? Because we're not seeing cold that exceeds our human experience. Our, our so this is like the 60s, is the there? Last century. Yeah. Michael, we're going to hit a break in 45 seconds. I, I, I know you can hang out with us a little longer, and I really appreciate that. But yeah. is this, as cold air is leaving the Arctic, is it being replaced at the Arctic with, with warm air from other latitudes? I mean, is this accelerating the melting of the Arctic? Uh, to an extent, there's evidence of that, right? What we're seeing is, is the uh, mixing process. So the cold air is drifting down into lower latitudes. But meanwhile, we're seeing a lot of warm air make it up into those higher latitudes. And that might impact uh, you know, Arctic, the melt of Arctic sea ice. And so that is something we have to keep a watch on. So, Dr. Mann, as I recall, back when you and I were discussing this a half a decade ago or thereabouts, um, at that point in time, there was, uh, as I recall, a, a, a scientist, a, my, my recollection is it was a woman, who was suggesting this theory that, that uh, the jet stream would weaken as a result of global warming, because the Arctic was warming so much faster than the mid-latitudes, and uh, that that was an explanation for some of the, uh, the, the polar vortex uh, situations we were seeing. And it was very controversial at that point in time in science. Um, what's the status of that perspective right now? You were, you were sort of quoting that a, a few minutes ago, but you yeah. did qualify it. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what evidence do we have, uh, and, what, you know, and where is the skepticism? So there's an emerging body of evidence, and uh, I think you're alluding to uh, Jennifer Francis, who's really yes. played a very important role in, in investigating those connections and, in fact, uh, in communicating them to the public. And I was delighted that she recently won the Climate Communication uh, Prize of the American Geophysical Union for her efforts to really inform our conversation about these linkages. Um, and so, you know, Jennifer, she's at the uh, Woods Hole Research Center. She's continuing to publish research in this area. And I think she makes a credible case um, for these connections that we've talked about, that the accelerated warming of the Arctic may, in fact, be impacting the jet stream in a way that counterintuitively can lead to more of these uh, polar vortex breakdowns like we've seen this winter and other previous winters. Um, there is still a scientific debate, um, and it's a healthy debate, right? This is the way science is supposed to be, and the critics like to say, oh, you know, where's the debate? Well, there's no debate about whether climate change is real or human-caused. That's the a consensus of, uh, you know, the, the, the world's scientific community and every scientific uh, organization, um, every academy that has investigated the science. We know that to be true. There isn't a debate about those things. How will climate change impact extreme winter, uh, extreme uh, weather events in the winter here in North America, there is a debate. And there are scientists who have challenged uh, Jennifer's findings, and Jennifer has countered challenges. And that all plays out in the peer-reviewed literature and at scientific meetings, the way science is supposed to work. So science is working the way it's supposed to be working. They're the things that we know well, um, you know, and, and, and what we know well is that climate change is real, human-caused. It's already a major threat, and it will be a much greater threat if we don't act. But all of the specifics about how it might impact certain types of extreme weather events, scientists are still in good faith debating some of those connections. We're seeing more extreme heat events. We, we you know, there's a, I think that's fairly clear to everybody. Are we seeing more extreme cold events as well? No, what we are, what we are seeing is more extreme cold than we might expect on a warming planet. So the extreme cold doesn't seem to be going away as fast as the extreme warmth is coming. It's sort of lopsided. The, the, the impact of the warming seems to, in this sense, be greater when it comes to extreme warm events than the diminishing of extreme cold events. And that might have to do with these changing 
you know, changing conditions in the atmosphere, the impact of climate change on the jet stream, on the polar vortex. And again, that's an area where, you know, there are scientists uh, still debating in good faith with each other about those connections. But it's at least plausible that that's what we're seeing here. Now, there's a, an ocean current, um, sometimes referred to as the Great Conveyor Belt, that transports yeah. heat from the Pacific down around the southern tip of Africa, up the east coast of the United States, where we refer to it as the Gulf Stream. Um, it, it conveys some considerable heat, I believe, to, to the east coast of the U.S., moderates a moderating effect, and then it crosses the Atlantic and, and sinks back down to the lower oceans off the coast of, of Europe, basically, uh, the southern Greenland and, and uh, western uh, U.K. And that is the, my understanding is that current is the reason why Europe, which has a latitude similar to Alaska, actually has a climate similar to Indiana. Uh, a, do I have that right? And B, what is climate change doing to that? Yeah, and so yeah, basically what you describe is, is, is the situation. Now, it's a bit of a simplification because part of why Europe is so warm is the same reason that Seattle is so much warmer than you know Labrador, um, a similar latitude on the East Coast, because you have these westerly winds, these winds from the west that are you know, coming in off the ocean, which is relatively warm in the winter, and bringing that warmer maritime air um, as it makes, uh, you know, as it makes, uh, you know, it, 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 it reaches us, um, it reaches the land. Right. So, so that's also, so Europe, even if the uh, so-called conveyor belt circulation, which as you say, is sort of a, a, an extension of what we think of as the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is really a, a term that scientists use more to describe the strong wind, uh, the, the strong ocean currents off the east coast, the mid-Atlantic east coast off of Cape Hatteras. And then it sort of curves around, travels north and east towards Iceland and Europe, and then it becomes what we call the North Atlantic Drift. Technically, it isn't the Gulf Stream anymore. It's a part of the Gulf Stream that sort of breaks away. It doesn't recirculate in the gyre, and it travels north. And it does bring warmer waters to Iceland, to uh, coastal Europe, and it does have a moderating influence. Now, if the Gulf Stream uh, were to shut down, it turns out you probably wouldn't get ice age-like conditions in Europe because you still have those maritime winds uh, over the ocean that are bringing that warm oceanic air into Europe. And so the Gulf Stream, or what we really call the North Atlantic Drift, is only part of the picture. And because of that, if it does shut down, uh, it won't lead to sort of a new ice age um, in Europe, but what it might do is um, you know offset uh, much of the warming and perhaps in some regions lead even to a little bit of cooling. For example, Iceland could actually see some cooling from a shutdown of this ocean current. Now, for a long time, we thought that this wouldn't happen you know for decades from now. But um, a study that I was actually involved in a few years ago with uh, scientists from, from the uh, Potsdam Institute in Germany, Stefan Ramstorff and colleagues, we showed in, in a journal, uh, one of the Nature journals, that climate change appears to be leading to a slowing down of that current now, not decades from now. And we think it's because Greenland is losing ice earlier than we expected. So that fresh water from the melting ice is flowing into the North Atlantic, making the waters lighter because fresh water is lighter than and cold water, um, and then salty water, um, and it's inhibiting the sinking motion that sort of drives that conveyor belt. So we think that's happening ahead of schedule. It's an example of where uncertainty isn't our friend. This is one of those impacts that might be playing out earlier than we predicted. Remarkable. Dr. Michael Mann, uh, thank you so much for dropping by, Dr. Mann. It's always great talking with you. Uh, you too, my friend. Thank you. Great, great having you with us. Check out his latest book, The New Climate War. It's, uh, it's rather extraordinary reading. In fact, uh, well, we talked about it a little while. Rush Limbaugh has passed away. He used his talents in ways that I think were uh, a massive net negative for America, sadly. You know, you can't deny that he was a very talented guy. Uh, so was Hitler, I mean. <laughs> anyway, what was it, John Donne 
in, uh, in, his, uh, in his poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls. He says, every man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We're all going to confront that at some point, you know, going into the light at the end of our, of our uh, time on this earth. I, I hope he was embraced by love and light. Anyhow, Gene Stewart is uh, tweeting to the governor of Texas. Now, this is, you know, on the tail end of the governor of Texas saying that the problem is windmills. I, it's, not, it's not me, nothing I did, nothing wrong with our utilities, nothing wrong with all that uh, natural gas that's frozen in the gas lines. No, 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 it's the windmills, it's the Green New Deal, don't you know? That's why we're in trouble. I mean, this really creates a crisis for democracy, and in this case for the state of Texas. When the governor of a state is lying to its people. And mayors have so bought into these lies that Limbaugh promulgated for so many years, sadly. That they are responding to their townspeople who are saying, hey, wait a minute, when are we going to get some warmth? When are we going to get some water? When are we going to get some food? I mean, people are burning their furniture in Texas right now in their fireplaces. So anyhow, Gene Stewart writes, I'm 73 years old. I live in Avondale Senior Apartments in far north uh, Fort Worth. We have no water, no power, and the elevator is frozen, which prohibits me from leaving because I'm in a walker and I can't do stairs. We have no heat and we have now been told to boil our water. writes this person on Twitter to the governor of Texas and then ends this, uh, I don't know what to, word to use other than tragic tweet to the governor asking for help, ends this tragic tweet with, how? How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to boil water? How am I supposed to get outside? How, how, how am I supposed to do anything? The, this mayor, Tim Boyd, has deleted his Facebook post. But he did double down. He told the press that he stands by everything he said. The one qualification he wishes he had put on it was that he didn't mean to be speaking to old people and disabled people. So there is apparently some point at which Republicans will say, well, yeah, we actually are concerned about somebody some people it's nuts this is the tom hartman program hey francis what's up i lived in portland in the 1970s and i'm pretty sure i know why portland doesn't have a public utility okay when i moved when I moved to Oregon from Iowa, I was so thrilled that there was a citizen initiative process, and I got involved with three initiatives, and one of them was an initiative to change the laws about how they convert from a private to a public utility. Because every other state in the country, it took one election, but in Oregon, it took two elections, which is pretty impossible. So we were way ahead in the polls, and um, even though we had almost no money, I think we had a total of $10,000 and, you know, PGE had spent millions on it, which they get paid back from the ratepayers with interest. And right. um, so we were way ahead in the polls. And Tom McCall decided to run for government, governor again. And his campaign just fizzled. So he was way in debt and he wasn't rich. So PGE hired him to lie. There were bulletins, there were bulletin boards all over Portland that said this, this, um, this ballot initiative, I've forgotten the number, will put you in debt without your consent. And because Tom McCall was so loved and trusted and so far in debt from his campaign that He's everybody... He's a former governor, right? Mid, yeah, he was the governor. He was the one that was the real environmental governor in the mid-'70s. And he retired, okay. and he decided to run again, and he just wasn't rich. And his campaign didn't go anywhere, so he didn't have enough money to pay off his campaign debts. So PGE went and hired him, and paid him a whole ton of money, and he lied to all the people in Oregon 
So the initiative failed. And the Citizens Utility Board, or CUB, which is what our group was called, took him to court. And we won in court. We won the $10,000 from him that we'd spent on the campaign. But that didn't matter. It hadn't changed the law. You know, and I'm wow. sure PG paid that 10000 and charged it to their ratepayers. So that yeah, was my no doubt about it. That's where I learned about the, the bad effect of private money in politics. Yeah, that's a great example. Francis, thanks so much for sharing that with us. That, that's, uh, uh, that's remarkable. Um, and and this, is, this is the kind of thing that you see all over the place. I, I've, I've told the story before, but I think it's, it, it's worth revisiting. Washington State, um, some elections ago, and, and, and Francis, thanks so much for that call. Um, Washington State had a ballot initiative that was sponsored in part by the governor, by Jay Inslee, who's a, 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 you know, such an environmentalist when he ran for president. That was the core of his, of his campaign. And this ballot initiative simply placed a very small carbon tax on carbon. You know, it was a very small carbon tax, and it got returned to the people. It got recycled back, to, you know, so that people who drove a lot would get more money. I mean, it was, it was well put together. And in the month before the election, a former Republican Secretary of State or Attorney General, I think he was the Secretary of State, who looked and talked like Mr. Rogers, was just, they just carpet bombed our airways, because we get Washington States, because we're right across the river from Vancouver, just carpet bombed our airways with these lies about how it was, uh, you know, it was going to jack everybody's taxes up, and it was going to cost everybody a fortune, and you wouldn't be able to afford to drive to work anymore. And that ballot initiative, which had started out with massive popularity, huge public support across the state, uh, went down in flames. Uh, again, the fossil fuel industry throwing money into politics. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Marie from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? Hey there, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. You were sort of musing aloud about the proposed attempt to purchase what was then Enron-owned um, privately operated um, utility <clears throat> and their yeah, Enron's expressed desire not to have it go into public hands. Um, I would venture to say that the more likely explanation about that is anytime there is something in public hands, the records then become public records subject to FOIA, open uh... records, other public document disclosures. So I wanted to kind of give you that perspective. It, it, it did not surprise me at all that they didn't want it to go public, considering what happened with Enron down the line. That makes so much sense. And, and, and I mean, we, the city sued them. I mean, it was a big deal. I, I was living here at the time. I was doing a local show as well as my national show. And, uh, and it was the talk of the town for weeks. And, and Enron was like, nope, we won't sell it to you. And the city sues them. And, they, and, then, and the, the court said, hey, you can't force them to sell something to you if they don't want to sell it to you. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a free market or whatever. And the city lost. And, and, but it, it, nobody could, I couldn't, you know, until you just said that, and this has been probably 10 years, uh, it was probably a decade ago that this happened. Um, I, I, the, you know, the, you just the penny just fell for me. Thank you so much for that, and, and I really appreciate your your call. Thank you. That that was great. I mean, that I, I'm just like I'm blown away. That that is that makes so much sense. That if the city had been able to acquire PG&E, the Portland Gas and Electric, then the city, you know, then then I could have submitted a Freedom of Information request to the city for the records of this of this now city company and we could find out all the sneaky stuff that they were up to just incredible rob is on the air from where from portland oregon oh from portland hey portland hey rob what's up good morning i have two comments one is on the on portland public power and the other is mm -hmm. on texas i was having breakfast it. uh at the Bijou downtown in Portland about the time that uh, the buyout, public buyout of Portland General was being discussed. And Eric Sten was at the next table, and it's an interest of mine, so I asked him. And he said that their management and who, who is he? So Eric Sten was a, a Portland He's city a city commissioner, commissioner isn't he? Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and so what he said, I asked him, you know, uh, how can we do this? And he said that mm -hmm. the Portland General Board 
former employees, managers was so intertwined with the power maker, you know, power, power people in Portland and decision makers that it was really impossible to do. That doesn't make any sense. The, the decision makers in, in government had so many connections to Portland General that they really could but, but, but the government actually tried to buy Portland General. I mean, we made an actual offer. Yeah, but it also hinged on the legislature. Uh, there was some condition in that sale concerning uh, the legislature. Yeah, it's been a long time. I don't remember all the details. Yeah, yeah. I just remember being outraged. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> else was, too. Yeah. One other item uh, in Texas, they have retail choice. So most of the power suppliers are like mobile phone companies trying to offer customers the best introductory deal. And so in right. Texas, about 10% of the customers change plans per year to get a better deal. I'm guessing that, you know, they, they basically just kind of block it together because, you know, it's the same thing here in Portland right now. I pay an extra, I think it's five bucks a month to, to have 100% of my electricity come from presumably the Bonneville Dam, you know, from, from a new renewable sources. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. And that includes you. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and people around you. These are tough times. We will get through them together. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 